And Lord, I pray that as we look at this passage in your word this morning, that you would encourage us in the same way, that you'd fill our hearts to overflowing so that we can turn around and overflow to others as well. In Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever uh, sat at a meal, maybe a feast, maybe a potluck, where there's lots and lots of good food and someone you know comes up and your immediate thought to them coming up is, sit down and enjoy the meal that I'm enjoying. You're doing something that you enjoy and you want to turn around and you want to bless that other person with the same thing. Uh, or have you uh, taken up a new hobby at some point? Some people are like this. They find a new hobby and they are head over heels. They're sold on it. And so everyone they talk to, they somehow mention that new hobby because they want to sell them on that thing they're enthusiastic about as well. And the fact is that we tend to share with others, oftentimes without even thinking about it, the things that we consider important, the things that we're enthusiastic about, the things that we're sold on. It's not hard, it's not work, we just do it. Because our heart is overflowing with those things that we're excited about. And so before we look in this passage in John, we'll be back in John's Gospel, chapter 1 this morning, let me ask you, what is it that fills your heart and your mind? What are you passionate about? What are you enthusiastic about? What do you introduce other people to? And in some cases, to whom do you introduce other people to? Think about that as we go through John 1. I'm going to start at verse 35 and 36. We've actually looked at these verses, but they introduce the rest of the chapter. Again, the next day, John, that is the Baptist, was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked upon Jesus as he walked and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. And Jesus turned and beheld them following and said to them, What do you seek? And they said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, where are you staying? Now remember, uh, these guys have just been told by John, this is the one we've been waiting for. So they run after him like little kids chasing a puppy, and the puppy turns around and says, what do you want? And they're a little flustered. They don't care where he's staying. They want to know who this is. They want to get to know him. But they're a little flustered. All they can get out is, well, where are you staying? Jesus knows what they want, though. He said to them, come and you'll see. They came, therefore, and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. Now, this would be about 4 p.m. if you're counting from 6 a.m. in the morning, as they did. So they stayed that day with him. They might have even spent the night with him. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He found first his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah which translated means Christ, he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You will be called Cephas. The next day he purposed to go forth into Galilee. That is, he's going to leave Judah down in the south and head north into Galilee. And he found Philip. Jesus said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida of the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, 
We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom is no guile, no deceitfulness. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you when you were there under the fig tree, I saw you. Jesus had no natural way to know this, which Philip know, or which Nathanael knows. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered and said to him, Because I said to you that I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You shall see greater things than these. Basically, you haven't seen anything yet. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you shall see the heavens opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. That closes our passage. And before we get into this, a couple of the main points here, I want to mention, follow up on this last verse, verse 51. What in the world is Jesus referring to here when he says, you'll see the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. If you remember these stories in the book of Genesis, in chapter 28, Jacob is running away from his brother Esau. And he gets to a city called Luz on his way from the area roughly of Judah up to go back around the Fertile Crescent to Haran to meet a young lady there that he can marry, as his parents have directed him. And while he's there at this place called Luz, he has a dream at night. It's a vision from God, and it says that he sees heaven opened, and there's a ladder, and it goes from right where he's at up to heaven. And God is standing at the top of the ladder, and there are angels going back and forth on the ladder from heaven to earth, and vice versa. And Jacob says in verse 17, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So that whatever else Jesus might mean by this, he's at least saying this. He is the ladder that links heaven to earth. He is the doorway, if you will, to the house of God. He is the introduction between heaven and earth and between God and man. And the disciples who hear this, they know the imagery from Genesis 28. And they know that this is a claim Jesus is making to be this connecting link, this link in a chain, if you will, heaven to earth, this ladder, this way for a man to get from earth to heaven, or the place that heaven comes down to earth. This is not unlike John 14, 6, where Jesus says, I am the way. The way to the Father, Jesus says, is through me and only through me. And so Jesus here clearly is making a claim that he is the way man gets from heaven to earth. He is the means by which God comes and visits earth. That's his claim. Seconding that, John the Apostle who wrote this passage also makes several claims for Jesus in the same passage. Listen to a few of the titles. I don't know if you noticed this as we read. John, in this short passage we read, calls Jesus the Lamb of God, Rabbi, Messiah, the one Moses and the prophets spoke of, the Son of God, the King of Israel, and the Son of Man. There's others actually in the rest of John 1. 
But Jesus clearly makes a claim for himself here to be deity, to be the link between heaven and earth. And then John makes several claims for him in the same passage just by the titles he gives them. So I needed to say that before we get into the main theme of this passage. And the theme is introductions or passing the baton or forming links in a chain. And look at the introductions in this passage. I tried to emphasize this as I read, so hopefully you've already caught some of them. The first is John the Baptist introducing his two disciples to Jesus as the Lamb of God in verse 36. John introduces two of his followers, one of whom is Andrew, to Jesus. Andrew, one of those two, turns around and introduces his brother Peter to Jesus as the Messiah. And then Philip, in verse 45, introduces Nathanael to Jesus as the one whom Moses and the prophets spoke of. In other words, every one of these occurrences, one person is introduced to Jesus. They, in turn, turn around and introduce someone else to Jesus. They are like links in that chain. They are introduced by someone to Christ. They turn around and introduce someone else to Christ. Now, this was not work for them. This wasn't a difficult task. This wasn't an embarrassing situation they found themselves in. They found this person that they highly valued. They found someone that they believed was the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises of a Messiah and a king and a deliverer. And they were so overjoyed by this discovery and they were so enthusiastic about it that they could not help but turn around and share what they had found, in this case a person, with someone else they knew and cared about. This was evangelism, if you will, in its most winsome form. And we'll talk about this a little bit more here in the future. In Luke 2.17, do you remember when the shepherds are told by the angels, go, go to this place, and for you a Savior's been born? And do you remember when they leave what it says of them? When they had seen this, they made known the statement which had been told them about this child. And the next verse says they left praising and glorifying God. They had seen something that was overwhelming and encouraging and positive. So that when they left, they simply found themselves telling everyone that would listen about what they had seen and heard and what had happened to them, what they had experienced. If you talk about this passage in John 1 as a model for evangelism, and it certainly is, it's a model that you've got to qualify because it's a particular kind of evangelism. Look back in the introductions that take place here because this is not evangelism as we oftentimes think about it. Each introduction is made by someone who valued Jesus to someone else that they believed would value him as well. Each introduction was a person who found someone they were looking for and then they turned around and introduced him to someone else that was looking for him as well. Each introduction here is from one person to another person that they already know, a family member, excuse me, or a good friend. In each case, This was simply the enthusiastic overflow of one person sharing what they had found, who they had found, with someone else that they already knew. So this would be like 
Joe McElroy telling Adrian about the latest Nickel Creek CD. Or this would be like some hobbyist telling another hobbyist about what they're passionate about and what they've just found out. It's not work. It's not intimidating. It's overflow. This introduction. You're introduced to something or someone you value and are enthusiastic about. You can't help but turn around like the shepherds or like these guys and introduce someone else to the same thing you have just found. It's like if you're a Kansas City Chiefs fan and they're in the playoffs, you're enthusiastic and you talk and you dress your children in Chiefs uniforms and you talk to others about those great Chiefs and their playoff hopes again this year. But it's this enthusiastic overflow. That's the kind of evangelism this is. This is not what I would term classical evangelism. In other words, as you read the book of Acts, this is not the kind of evangelism taking place in the book of Acts. Think about this for just a minute. In Acts, the folks that are sharing the gospel are primarily designated, commissioned heralds who publicly shout a message to crowds that they may or may not know. This is not that kind of evangelism. This is not cross-cultural evangelism. This is not one person going into another culture that they don't know, to people that they don't know, to tell them about this message. It's not that cross-cultural evangelism either. This is not apologetics evangelism. In other words, this is not one person trying to tell a skeptical audience why they should believe in this person. This is not any of those kinds of evangelism. This is the kind of evangelism that you often see with someone who is a new convert to Christ. And I don't know if your transition was like this or not. To some degree, mine was. But this person who has heard the message about Jesus, they've been forgiven, they found a new relationship, they feel the sense of freedom and new life, they're unburdened, they experience this transformation. And what do you find them doing? They end up telling the people they know, their family members, their friends, their co-workers, about Christ. They don't work at it. It's not difficult for them to do. They might be a pain in the side, in, in the sides of the people they're talking to because of their enthusiasm. But it's that their heart is overwhelmed and it's overflowing with something good they have found. And so they turn around and they want to make that same introduction to someone else so that they can get the same benefit they've experienced. This is that kind of evangelism. This is like the young woman who becomes engaged. And what does she do in every conversation? If she's got that engagement ring on, she makes sure that you see it one way or another. And then that begins the conversation about her upcoming marriage and this great guy that she found is going to be, become married to. She doesn't work at it. She's overflowing with this theme, this thing that she is enthusiastic about, excited about. It fills her vision and her mind and her heart, and so she has to share it. And, you know, scripturally, you'll find that it's what fills our heart. That's what we overflow with to others. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. If you think about this, if you and I tend to be worrisome people, 
what you'll share with others is anxiety. If you tend to be positive or joyful in your outlook or experience of life, other people will think you're positive and joyful because that's what they'll hear and that's what they'll see. But it's what fills us in here that comes out. What do we spill over? What are we filled up with and what gets spilled over? In John 1, this is the evangelism of an overflowing heart sharing who they have found with someone else. And if you think about this for just a minute, if you know Christ today, it's because someone told you about him. For most of us, it's personal. Most of us don't get saved by the TV, but that would still be hearing someone. Most of us don't get saved in large Uh, conferences like crusades, although that would be the same thing. We would be hearing the message from someone else. But anyone who knows Christ heard the gospel and believed it because someone else told them. And if you look back, someone told that person so that they could believe. Someone made the introduction to Christ to the person who told you. And someone made that person an introduction to Christ. And any of us sitting here today, and any Christian in the world, we trace our lineage, our chain, the introductions that brought us to Christ today. Those links in the chain, those introductions go all the way back to the people in this passage. Literally. And the disciples that we'll meet as John's gospel goes on. But every one of us is just one more link, if you will, in that chain of introductions that's gone down through the ages. And the emphasis here at one level should be just as you were introduced to Christ by someone else, the expectation is that you will turn around and do the same thing for someone else. And again, this is not to be work. You know, sometimes we talk about evangelism. It's an embarrassing thing. We don't know how to broach the subject with someone else. We're afraid that we might sound kooky or far-fetched or whatever. But the truth is, if it's Christ who fills your heart, it's easy to talk about him to others. Just like it's easy for that bride-to-be to talk to others about her fiancé. There's no sense of embarrassment or shame. She loves this guy. She's proud of him. She's thrilled about the thought of marriage. And so that's what she shares with others. And at some level, that should be our experience in sharing the gospel with others. And it's a great question to ask yourself from time to time. Who introduced me to Christ? Who have I introduced to Christ? To whom am I overflowing with this good theme, this good message? One of the other things about this passage that I love, because this kind of evangelism, it's personal and it's easy, The other thing about it is it's not hard uh, in the sense that you don't have to be any kind of expert to do this. You know, sometimes we think that if we share the gospel with someone else, if we talk about Christ to others, that we have to be able to answer their questions about why they should believe the Bible, why is Jesus different than Muhammad or anyone else, What about those lousy Christians that I know? How can Jesus be who he says he is based on the people that I see, etc.? All kinds of things can overwhelm us. Or we might be the embarrassment. We're 
we know that people think Christians are weird or, or wacky or whatever. And so we're afraid of being embarrassed. But one of the beauties of this passage is one of the prime ways in which this evangelism takes place. In verse 39, Jesus says to Andrew and the other disciple, all he says to where are you staying, and the bigger question they didn't ask, who are you? What are you like? We want to get to know you. Jesus says this simply. He says, come and see. Come and see. That's easy. Or in verse 43 to Philip, all Jesus says is, follow me. Come and check me out. Come and watch me. In verse 42, Andrew to Peter, it says he brought him to Jesus. He made no defense. There was no apologetic to get into. We don't know what the rest of the conversation looked like. All Andrew did was brought him to Jesus. This was not work. This was easy. Verse 46, Nathanael is put off by the thought that the Messiah could possibly be from Galilee. Philip makes no defense. He doesn't try to answer any questions or apologize for Galilee. All he says is, come and see. <clears throat> this renders evangelism down, if you will, to letting Jesus speak for himself. This doesn't involve philosophy. It doesn't involve apologetics. You don't know, have to know the Bible inside out. You don't have to have all the answers to all the questions that someone might come up with. You and I can say to others, this is what we found personally to be true of Jesus. This is what he has meant to me in my life. And I invite you to come and see for yourself. I invite you to simply accept the invitation to come and see for yourself. And for someone else, come and see could be just an invitation to a Bible study. Come and see could mean, have you ever read the New Testament? Have you ever read the Gospel of John? Why don't you just start there? Just read it for yourself and tell me what you think. Come and see might mean come and visit us on church. Because you know that when the church gathers, the Spirit of Christ joins with us. And there's the experience of God in our midst. So, at two levels, this is easy evangelism. Even if we call it evangelism, it sounds like work all of a sudden. So don't even think about that in that way if, you, if it helps. This is easy because all you're doing is introducing someone else to someone that you've been introduced to. You're only allowing your heart to overflow with something good that you can turn around and share with someone else. And if there's any question on their part, if there's any defensiveness, you know, if you can't do anything else, you can just say to them, well, come and see for yourself. Just investigate it for yourself. There are good things. Peter does say, be ready to give a defense for the hope that's in you. And certainly as we grow in Christ, hopefully we'll know more and more why it makes sense to trust the Bible, why it makes sense that Jesus is who he said he is, etc., it might even be helpful to know some philosophical discussions related to any or all of this. But you don't have to know any of that stuff to be able to say to someone else, just come and see for yourself. This is evangelism as easy as it gets. Several years ago, 
uh, our family started going to Colorado for summer vacations. And we went to the YMCA camp in Estes Park. And we had a great time. And it's gorgeous if you've ever been up there. It's near Rocky Mountain National Park. It is just a lovely, lovely place. The camps are very friendly to families. They are intentionally friendly to families. They keep their costs down, so they're fairly reasonable. We had such a good time, we went up the next year. And we went up the next year. And the next year. And the next year. And we went to the Winter Park YMCA camp. Because, you see, once we went up there and experienced it for ourselves, we were sold on the Y camps. And so guess what we would do when conversations turned to anyone else about family vacations? We would start on our spiel about how great the YMCA camps were. And we'd tell them, man, you got to go. And we'd tell them all the reasons why. And all the good things you can do there. You don't even have to leave. You can swim and skate and play basketball and volleyball, etc., etc., etc. You see, we didn't work at this. We didn't sit down and pray in the morning that we would be effective in telling someone else about the Y camp. We would find ourselves sharing with someone else about the Y camps because we were sold on them, because we'd experienced them, because we knew what a good time it was and what a great time we had every time we went. And so we would just find ourselves talking about it. In fact, the, the harder and the more difficult it got to get our reservations, year after year we started thinking maybe we should tone down our enthusiasm and our introductions of others to the Y camp. But you see, that was typical of the other families who were going. They were doing the same thing. Have you been to the Y camp? You got to go. See, it wasn't work. It wasn't hard. We just overflowed to others with the joy and our personal experience and what we had found there. And we would invite them to do the same thing. You ought to go and check it out for yourselves. Go and see for yourself. You see, it wasn't hard. It wasn't work. It was just overflowing and inviting them to see for themselves. Because of this, I've got to ask you, as certainly I ask myself, do you find that your faith, that your relationship with Christ is of the overflowing, contagious variety? And if you don't, why isn't it? Why isn't it? If it's not Christ who fills your heart, and remember, his life is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That's what his life looks like in you and I. These are good things. His life is life. So that if you and I don't look like these disciples then the question has to be raised, why don't we? I would argue that it's because something else fills our heart. And you remember we talked last week about signs of life and the law of the spirit of life? See, the truth is we're supposed to be these creatures on earth who have a taste of the good life to come. And so it kind of spoils us for the trinkets on earth because we know we've got something bigger and better. So that that's what fills our heart and our mind. But the truth is, for many, if not for most of us, the years get a little long down here. And we forget we're going to that bigger and better country. 
And we're like the third soil in Luke's gospel where Jesus says the, some of the seed the farmer threw, it went on the soil and it sprang up. But, but what happened was over time, the worries and the cares of the world, see, they weighed it down. They kept it from bearing fruit. If you have the Spirit of Christ, if you're a believer, then their experience in John 1 should be your experience and mine. And if it's not, I would make the argument it's because something else fills our heart. Something else pushes out the life of Christ, and we've substituted that, him, for something else. If you think of this, the first commandment in the law of Moses, and and totally apart from the law, this would be true anyway, is, I am the Lord your God, have no other gods before me. Why does he say that first? Because that's exactly what we do first and foremost. First, we're our God, and then we make everything else God, an idol, something that we put between us and God. And see, that's not life. That's not life. Sometimes when you hear things like this about Christ being first in your life, it can sound like this weight, this load that you've got to carry. I'm a Christian. I've got to put God first. And it means death, and it means hardship. See, the opposite should be true. When you put Christ first, when we put God first, then we get life, because he's it. See, and everything else on the earth, these are just trinkets we get to play with, and they're good, and God means for us to enjoy them, and they are vehicles, if you will, by which we enjoy or experience his goodness in his life to us, but they are not life. They are not life. Sex is not life. Good music is not life. Good food is not in itself life. Any of the things that we get caught up with, good vacations, faraway places, I mean, think whatever it is that I get enthusiastic about all kinds of things. And they're good things. Nothing wrong with them. But see, when you make them your life, then not only are they not life, you lose out on everything else. And as Christians made in the image of God, meant to bear his image again a second time, if you will, bigger and better because of redemption, we're made for him and for his life so that when our hearts are full of him, they're full of life, and then we get to enjoy all the ways he wants to bless us on earth and then in heaven. You know, Paul tells Timothy, everything God's created is good, and he means for us to enjoy it. So that when I say we put Christ first, this doesn't mean that we're losers, It doesn't mean that we're bearing some heavy load. It means that putting Christ first, we get real life. And having him first in real life, then we can enjoy all the other things he gives us in the right ways. Because then everything's in order. But if this experience isn't yours and mine, of these disciples, that the cup of their heart is overflowing with Christ and they can't help but turn around and introduce others to him, if that's not our experience, then you must ask the question, why not? Why not? Why not? Someone introduced you to Jesus. And then the question becomes, who have you introduced to Jesus? Not not difficult, not who have you won for Christ, just whom have you made that introduction to? Are the links in the chain of introduction 
someone introduced one person to Christ and another, and, and somehow that became in your chain. You became the next link in the chain. Has the chain stopped at you and at me, or have we turned around to make the next link, the next introduction? And see, we're not called, you don't have to convince anyone. You and I don't save anyone, and God doesn't need us to save anyone but we get the privilege of helping make these introductions. And you know, some of the people you introduce to Jesus are going to come to know him because he's at work and that's what he does. We don't do that, but he does. And we get to be a link in the chain of introductions. I might mention too, before I close, if you, if you think, the question for me is helpful to ask, what is it that I tend to talk to other people about? What is it that I tend to talk to other people about? That's typically what's filling my heart or my mind, my thoughts and my emotions. In the conversations I have with others, what do I tend to talk about? And I can tell you for myself, one of the things I love to talk about are vacations and discovering new places, trying new things. I love this. I love to study beforehand and I love doing it and then coming home and talking about it. I love that. And so it's easy for me to talk about vacations with others, this whole process. You know, I'm not always as quick to be able to turn around and share what Christ is doing in my life. I think I shared this not long ago. I remember as a new Christian, I, I was such a mess. It's not funny. I was ridiculous. But but I remember reading Romans 12 too, and I felt so constrained as a person. Um, I was trying to figure out who I was and what God meant for me, and I was, I was so tired. I went to a big school, K-State, to get out of the rut that I'd been in with friends, and the things that we had done together, I, I knew my life was going nowhere, and I became a Christian at K-State, and my life was still a mess, but I remember reading Romans 12 too in the living translation it said be a new and different person all you think and say or do and that struck me it was life it was that scent of a flower I couldn't see it was the echo of the song I hadn't heard and it changed me and I was sharing this verse from the Bible with my pagan friends before we were at our parties before we were smoking our marijuana and getting drunk I was sharing Romans 12 too with them and it wasn't hard and it wasn't work it was because it was because it was changing my life and I knew this was life. I knew that Christ meant I would be free to get out of the hole I was in and that I would be free to be who he wanted me to be, that, that Christ would be the difference for me between bondage and slavery or freedom in life. And it certainly, I mean, my life was more bondage than anything else at the time, but I knew this was it. And so I was sharing it with others. That's what was filling my heart. And if, if we're not, if this John 1 experience is not typical of you and I, ask God, Lord, what have I put in place of you? What's filling my heart, the cup of my heart? Ask yourself, what are you quick to speak about to others? What are you always ready to talk about? That's a pretty good indication of what you're thinking about and where your heart and your affections are at. And if Christ isn't, if it's not easy to share with others the things he's doing with you, the things he's doing in your life, or the things you're finding out to be true about him, 
then ask yourself why. What is it, Lord, that's keeping me from this kind of life, from this enthusiastic overflow of your life in me to someone else? Think about that. Our experience of Christ is meant to be so rich and so full that John 1 would be the norm, the experience for us. That is what we're called to. And you may know a Christian in your life, or we can certainly read about someone like Paul, for whom this was the norm. This was the norm. He said, for me to live, that's Christ. He was full of Christ. And what person in the scriptures can you think of that was more joyful than Paul? Or a guy who was, who was able to get all this work done because he had an inner strength and an inner energy. You know, he said, man, I can't do other than I am. I'm constrained. I'm full of the life of Christ. That's what we're called to. And this is not bearing a load. It's not one more thing to do. It's really buying into the life Jesus died to give us and then simply turning around and revealing that life to those around us. Okay, let's pray. Lord, I'm struck again uh, by the shallowness of my own experience. And Lord, how often it is that I struggle with the thought of talking to others about you. And Lord, I know it's because so many other things displace you. Thoughts of one thing or another, the desire to, to do one thing or another, they crowd you out. And I left just with myself and my own energies and some sense of responsibility or burden in talking to others about you and guilt. But Lord, I know that to come to you, the fountain of life, to have your spirit within us, as Jesus said in John 7, this river, this fountain of life, overflowing that those who believed in you would have. Lord, how far short our experience is from what you call us to. Father, I pray that you would help us, as we talked about last week, put to death things that keep us from you and from life. I pray that our passions would be set on nothing less than you and your goodness and the good ways you mean to bless us. I pray that like these first disciples, Lord, our sharing with others would be the overflow of a heart full of you and full of your life. I pray that introducing others to you would be as easy as it was for these men. And I pray, Lord, when we don't know what else to say to others, we would simply invite them to come and see for themselves if you aren't who you claim to be. Lord, help us that our heart may overflow with the good theme, which is you yourself. In Jesus' name, amen.